Welcome to the Barnaby Cecil NHS Pensions Podcast. I'm Tom Skinner, Founder and Managing Director of Barnaby Cecil, a financial planning firm working with NHS members in the UK. I'm Emma Walker, also co-founder and main research analyst at Barnaby Cecil. This podcast is designed to address the complexities of the NHS pension scheme and to help members feel clearer about their options before retirement and beyond. Each quarter, we'll record an episode based on the questions you've asked us. If you'd like your question answered, please tweet us at Barnaby Cecil FP or email us at hello at barnabycecil.com. Welcome back to part two of uh, this four-part series intended to power up your NHS pension knowledge. So part one was all about should you stay? So you're about to hand over quite a considerable amount of cash to the NHS or to NHS pensions over your entire career. Should you stay? Should you do so? And what are the issues if you decide to leave? And in principle, the biggest problem you've got if you decide to leave the NHS is that the employer won't help you. So you're leaving money on the table throughout your career, in effect, because the employer contributions that go into the, the scheme and that are funded and the support that you get from the taxpayer in terms of how public sector pensions are underwritten is not handed back to you if you decide to go alone. So that's a massive hurdle compared to, and in the podcast, as I discussed, uh, anybody that you might know or yourself if you work in the private sector as well, whereby there is employer contributions and tax relief to be, to support people to save towards their retirement. So in essence, it's really, really tough to replicate anything that you might receive from the NHS and NHS pension if you go alone. Part two is all about how good is good. So you've been told by pension experts like me and, and various people on, on Twitter, on other forums, and maybe people in your family and maybe friends or colleagues that the NHS pension is good, that you should definitely pay into the NHS pension. But how good is good? Because it's pretty useless being told something is good unless you're given context. Maybe good to you is actually really quite excellent. Conversely, maybe good to you is okay. And maybe good to you is in fact not as good as you might have thought. So what we've tried to do in this podcast is to articulate what you will receive at the end of your career. So first of all, in term, right before we get into the quantum of what might make your NHS pension good, let's talk in more broader terms about what makes a final salary pension good or a defined benefit scheme to give the, the broader term for a grouping of, of all different types of pensions that fall, well, that fall under that remit. What makes it so good is that during your career, as you work for the NHS, there's not a lot you have to do. In fact, there's virtually nothing that you've got to do until you get into uh, more senior type roles and you're caught by perhaps the annual allowance and perhaps the lifetime allowance, that, which aren't being discussed today. But therefore, there is a bit more involvement because you've got to think about what's happening within your pay across the year. But in other terms... There's no real requirement to log on and select a fund. There's no real requirement to calculate or shoulder any of the responsibility of the risk of the investment. The risk of the investment, or the investment might underperform, is covered in itself by the scheme itself. And the the mass number of people paying in each month to the scheme and funding those already in retirement in receipt of the pension payments today 
is the strength of the scheme itself. So by that, I mean that your payments that you make today are actually being received by those who are now in retirement, who have retired, and, and, and you're paying their pension. And the deal is, is that when you retire, those that are working today will fund your retirement. And that's how the schemes have worked, and particularly these schemes, which are known as unfunded, in that there's no underlying asset base. So the actuaries have got to marry up really the, the cost from external sources. There are contributions into the calculation from taxpayer and money that's apportioned, not just from the taxpayer, but in terms of uh, money that uh, the employer, like any other employer, puts aside for pension contributions and, of course, the members themselves. But if they get those numbers right, then all should be well. And Lord Hutton, who was given the job in 2010 of making the scheme more sustainable for future generations, proposed a, a range of changes that should are intended to make the scheme better value for those on lower income and more sustainable in the future. Uh, and there are things in there that the actuaries can't know. So although they don't have to calculate future market returns, as is in the defined contribution world, so these are uh, personal pensions and SIPs, those members or, or, or those holding those types of pensions have to work out a range of other factors that, uh, that aren't, uh, aren't included here. They still have to look at, work out on average how, how long each individual is going to live for. And that's tricky enough now, but when you're trying to plan 10, 20, 30, 40 years in advance and consider how longevity may, may increase or plateau, get the figure wrong, and if uh, life expectancy plateaus out, then maybe you've, you've charged people working today too much money, conversely, get that wrong, and uh, the strain on the scheme if people then begin to live much longer than was anticipated maybe decades before. Now, when you come to retire, they will pay you an income. And if inflation, so the cost of goods and services around you goes up each year, a proportion of that and the meaningful proportion of that, so CPI, the Consumer Prices Index, so that includes all things like food uh, and the cost of services in the UK. If those goes up, they're covered by the scheme as well. So your living costs increase throughout retirement. So when they pay the pension to you in retirement, the income, Whatever is happening in the wider stock market, which is never decoupled from the news or very far from the news, uh, is of no real interest to you in terms of how your pension is performed because it won't go up and down. If there is a war in the Middle East, for example, and that affects all prices, um, and all prices then affect the value of stocks, either positively or negatively, just to give one example, that won't affect you. So there's a fundamental benefit, therefore, is that the longer you live and the fitter you stay, the longer the pension will pay for, and you never need to worry about running out of money. So let's compare that then to somebody with money saved up in a SIP. There's just a whole lot more to consider for that individual. So let's say you get to 60 and you've saved £2.5 million um, in a personal pension. Ignoring the complexity of how do you get from point A to point B and save £2.5 million, even when you arrive at £2.5 million, you then have a range of risks, and we have software. And if you want to take a look at um, the wealth map section, about there's a, a section there that explains you know, how do we resolve these problems when people retire, and what what technology and software is there available to help us. But let's just take two. You've got sequence risk. Now this is the disproportionate effect that a negative set of returns will have in the first decade on somebody retiring. So let's say that that person with 2.5 million has a series of poor returns. 
in the first year a minus 10%, then a minus 5%, then a minus 3%. Although that's unlikely, it could happen. And if it did happen, it has a much bigger impact on the sustainability of their of their drawdown in retirement than if it happened at 70 or 80. If you get a poor set of returns in your 80s and having reached that 2.5 capital, you're then exposed to a range of further risks. So ignoring how you got from point A to point B and saved 2.5 million and how that was achieved and the complexities of, of doing so, once you then reach retirement, uh, what factors are there to consider. And if you take a look at the wealth map part of our website, there's a section there that explains what software we have to assist us in financial planning in general. But uh, much of the the software that we have helps us with the range of factors to be considered when somebody has an amount of capital to draw. But let's take two things to consider. Sequencing risk is the disproportionate effect that a series of poor market returns has at the start of retirement. So let's say you have a minus three, a minus five, and a minus seven in your first three years. That has a much, much bigger impact than if that happens when you're 70 or when you're 80. It hurts the portfolio more at the start than it does do towards the end. So get through the first decade with a reasonable set of returns from markets and you're pretty much set then. You're not likely ever to run out of money. That's not the case if you have a a poor first set of returns and that's not a sequencing risk. Longevity risk is how long the individual is going to live for. So get that wrong as a planner and they've had uh, a meaner retirement than they needed to if they sadly perhaps die earlier in retirement than they might have expected or hoped, then they will have additional capital and they could have spent more at the start. And conversely, get it wrong on the other side and, and the individual runs out of money before their, their number's up. And these are two big things that are not are not something that you ever need to worry about with a final salary, I shouldn't say final salary, defined benefit pension. So in broad terms, it's good and it's good for the reasons that I've explained. But let's try and get down to the numbers. So Emma and I sat down and we tried initially to come up with some kind of formula that you could just take a pen and paper and a calculator and it would give you some broad way of calculating, you know, some kind of loose rule of thumb you could apply to any number of years of membership, to any amount of pay. And we just couldn't find anything that would have done anything more than to damage and lead you lead you astray in terms of, of what you could or might might be likely to expect. And the challenges are that we now have three schemes. So the calculations in each scheme, the accrual factors, so that's uh, how much one year in each scheme is worth to you, change in each of those schemes. You also have the way in which each pension is calculated. So how do they use your salary? Are they using an average of your salary throughout your entire career? Are they using the best three in the last 10 years? Or are they using your best salary in your last three years? All have a massive impact in terms of the final numbers. So that wasn't hard enough. You then have each member interacting with those schemes in a different way, determined by your date of birth. So uh, when you join the newer schemes uh, will depend on not only your date of birth, but then also the, the decisions that you make at retirement. Because for the period between 2015 and 2022, when you retire, again, depending on when you join the NHS scheme, so this isn't available to everybody, but for most people I suspect listening to this podcast, they will have the decision at retirement whether to place seven years in the older scheme, the 1995 scheme, or seven years in the newer scheme, the 2015 scheme. 
And there's reasons in previous podcasts why uh, you might prefer one over the other. It isn't necessarily the case that putting your benefits in the older scheme will always be better. And finally, the length of your career will make a big difference. So if you've come out of med school at 23, let's say, and have done 37 years at 60, that's fairly predictable in that sense. But obviously, not everybody walks that path. Some people come to medicine later, and that, of course, affects the figures. So what were we able to ascertain from modelling four different individuals? And were there any patterns that we we spotted and any any that you could use to assist in your own financial planning? So Emma and I have been working since 2015 together. We set up the company in 2019. And we have a spreadsheet that it's on it and it's on about its four thousandth iteration for each of the three schemes. Uh, 1995, 2008, and 2015. And we use that spreadsheet to manually calculate NHS pension benefits to do one of two things, either to check the benefits that the individual is being told by the NHS that they've accrued to date, um, but then also to do some modelling. So the individual says, I don't know, what does my pension look like if I drop to eight PAs? What does my pension look like in terms of my annuance calculation year? What does my pension look like if I take my personal pension first before I access my NHS pension? We'll use the spreadsheet to calculate all those different types of scenarios. So we took someone born in 1961, 1971, 1981, and 1991. Now, it would be marvellous if you heard a year there and thought, that's my date of birth, or year of birth. But if you're broadly near those figures, or just somewhere to then that will be helpful. But we did spot patterns, meaningful patterns, in each of the calculations. So I'll run through those now. So we'll start with 1961. This individual would be in the 1995 scheme only, and they would have, and in our calculation, we said they had 35 years worth of membership and a final salary of 110,000. So this would mean that this individual would have all things being equal, a pension of 48,000 and tax-free cash of 145. Which would, after tax, mean a pension of £3,400 a month. So we're at the races there. We know that this individual is going to have a pension of £3,400 a month. I'll come back to that figure at the end. Next up, 1971. So this person has 90, so membership in the 1995 scheme and 2015 scheme. We decided that this person would would elect to have their pensions placed in the legacy scheme or the McLeod judgment. So this person's affected by the McLeod judgment. So they've got their seven years. And in our model, we decided that they chose the legacy option. So they entered the 2015 scheme in 2022. And that decision they chose, they made that decision at retirement. So don't worry about, I haven't decided that yet. You haven't got to worry about it until you retire. Or you haven't certainly got to worry about making the decision until you retire. And so... In this person's breakdown, it was slightly more complicated because they had two income streams starting at different dates. But we had a pension in the 1995 scheme of 36,000 and tax-free cash of 108. And in the 2015 uh, scheme, they had the option of taking 16,000 at their state pension age or 11,000 pounds or 5,000 pound reduction when they were 60. And no tax-free cash, automatic tax-free cash available either. So you can take a lesser pension paid out for longer than waiting until the state pension uh, with the 2015 scheme. We can do it with the 1925 scheme as well. But in this calculation, they took everything at their 60th birthday. So that gave them a net pension by our calculations of 3,350. So only 50 pounds a month less 
um, the individual born in 1961, but a tax-free cash of £108,000. So they've dropped about £40,000 in tax-free cash. However, significantly, 3000 broadly 3300 3400 for the individual who had retired at 60 and been born in 1971. Next up, 1981. And this individual has even less years in the 1995 scheme. So they've dropped 10 years. They've only got 16 years in the 1995 scheme and 19 years in the 2015 scheme. So they, so this is the, the group now that are pretty much their benefits are falling half and half in either scheme. That individual has an NHS pension at 60 of 22,000 and tax free cash of 66,000. They have accrued a pension at 60 of 32,000 if they wait until their state pension age, which for that individual will be 68, or 22,000, so they can have 10,000 less, but they can have it six years early, and a net pension of 3,150 and tax free cash of uh, 66,000. So again, we've dropped about another 40,000. So as you can see, the tax-free cash is coming down over time, but the income available at 60, even with the actuarial reduction, so that that individual who would be about, four, well, they would be 40 now, is probably thinking I've got to work to at least 68. That's not the case. That's just when the state pension starts and the normal retirement date or the date without any actuarial reduction is with the 2015 scheme. But you're on a very similar level of income with the same level of graduation. So we didn't give these individuals any form of CA points or any awards or anything like that. So we just put them on the normal banding. And also we applied inflationary measures to their pay, the same inflation measures to their pay, I, I should say, over time. 1991 is the final one up. And this individual is only in the 2015 scheme. So they weren't eligible for the McLeod judgment and the pay goes through all of their so they go through all of their pay increments so all their all their pay in the NHS becomes part of the equation they're the first person where all of their pay and there was no final salary element to their calculation it was all career average for that individual we have a net pension of 2500 no tax free cash and if they are able to work or willing to work until their state pension age there is a, a net pension of 3600 so as we can see with this individual, they drop £500 a month if actually reduced at 60, but significantly no tax-free cash uh, automatically available. They have to give up income in order to generate tax-free cash. But if they continue to work until 68, then they're on the same pension as the other three on around about 3600 a month. But you could say that they, and I'm just trying to think of a, a boss that's been on the, on the fact that is very significantly less than the other three perhaps they uh, are likely to live longer and they've also got more time in which to save and to rectify this situation if it's an issue whereas if you were to flip this round the older members would have less time to adjust uh, their income or do anything about it but yeah so we were able using some fairly reasonable assumptions in terms of people entering medicine almost immediately from med school, having had no major gaps between and having had a fairly typical career throughout, were able to attain a pension of around about £3,500 a month. And as I said at the start of this podcast, everything is context. So you might look at uh, that level of, of income and think, well, it's broadly similar 
to what I earn now. And so that's fantastic. And or you might look at it and think, well, it's significantly less than I earn now. Um, I might need to make some changes and adopt that. And if you read any of the sort of finance blogger discussion points around this, they, when when discussing saving into a or having trying to build capital or, or wealth, their advice to not adjust your saving to accommodate increases or not adjust your lifestyle when you get a pay rise. The issue for people on high incomes in the NHS is that there'll be natural lives dying in terms of that, uh, let's say you retire on 10,000 a month net and you've been used to living that for a decade and actually dropping down to 3,500 is quite a significant drop. Dropping down to 5,000, less so. Or if your pay when you retire is 6,000, dropping down to 3,500 is less impactful. So all these things are, are uh, need context. And so the planning point there is that if you think that your uh, income is going to be slightly higher, and it would not be unusual for somebody who maybe has a CEA award, maybe some private income, to be earning 10000 a month, perhaps if I were to guess, maybe uh, seven or eight might be the, the average level of income of somebody retiring, but that's conjecture in the sense that it's not based on anything other than just uh, sort of anecdotally as a quick sum in my mind. But the the key thing to take away there is that you now know, based on our calculations, that you will be looking at an income of about 3,500 somewhere in there. And the individual in 1991 has the most planning to do in a sense if they don't wish to work until 68 and have the same level of income or if they want to generate some extra capital at retirement with no reduction in their income. And to conclude, I would say do your own sums. So have a look at the way in which the schemes are calculated. There are examples available on the on the web in terms of how each scheme is calculated. And to get accurate, you've got to be sort of comfortable in an Excel spreadsheet, but it's not impossible to do so. Listen to more podcasts, follow the various individuals that talk about pensions and interest pensions on Twitter. Email people like me and ask questions about your own circumstances and then trawl through the NHS Pensions website because there's a lot of information on there in terms of how each of the scheme operates and a lot of working examples as well in terms of what individuals can expect. So now that we've got an idea as to what that base income could be and might be when you come to retire and how each of those four individuals, how their benefits are likely to behave over time, in the next podcast, we'll look at how to increase those benefits if you feel knowing this, that you're coming up somewhat short. This next minute or two is going to look at the technical assumptions that we made in making these calculations uh, for anybody who is going to model the figures themselves. And also, I suppose, anybody who just wants to understand the assumptions that we made within the calculations. So there were no annual allowance charges or lifetime charges taken into account for two reasons. One, we don't know whether the individual did have any allowance charges in either an annual basis or at the end of their career when they finally retire. And also, we don't know what future legislation is going to be around either of those two mechanisms. It was too complicated to make assumptions. And for the majority of individuals, it's quite likely, particularly those that have, are, are, will only have benefits in the new scheme, that they may not have any annual allowance charges at all, uh, and they may stay within the lifetime allowance. One of the assumptions that you have to make around this calculation is what inflation will be. 
Uh, and the inflationary figure that we focus on is the, compu- the Consumer Prices Index, CPI. In our calculations, we use 2.5 as a static figure throughout. And also the SCAPE calculation, which is how the 2015 scheme is revalued, we used 1.5 as a static figure for that number as well. In the podcast where we're talking about individuals having 3,300 a month or whatever the figure is being described, those figures were always net. They were always after income tax had been deducted. But it could be that those figures are slightly lower again because of an annual allowance or lifetime allowance deduction that was made. And finally, the figures that we used were always based on a doctor's pay scale or consultant's pay scale only. And therefore, we used a maximum in today's figures of 110,000, which would be consult pay threshold eight. And therefore, if the person, individual, had a higher level of pay due to additional awards, for example, then these figures would be, or the figures that we use would in fact be higher. And any of the retirement dates that we used are based on today's figures and could be subject to change. For example, the uh, retirement date of 68 used for the 1991 individual could be increased in the future yet. Um, it is yeah, subject to any changes and also to income tax and any of the assumptions that we've made. And then to conclude that this podcast is intended to be used as a guide and you should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions yourself. Thanks for listening in and I'll talk to you soon. That's it for this month. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could spare a few moments to rate, review or like us because this helps us get found by more people. And please send us your questions for the next episode by tweeting us at FP or emailing us at hello at barnabycecil.com. You can also find out more about us by going to barnabycecil.com. And here you can also book a call if you'd like to discuss your own particular question in more detail. Thanks for listening. <laughs>